Welcome to episode 53 of the Contra Fabulous podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And we are a few days late in recording this one. Um, We had company this weekend, and I guess we sort of forgot, missed it, forgot. Yeah, I think uh, Sunday we just kind of did some of the usual touristy things with my sister and her husband. And we ended up in uh, little Tokyo and and driving around in the rain in Los Angeles. So, yeah, I think it just slipped our minds. Um, But that means that we've actually got quite a bit of content to cover, quite a lot of stories to talk about. Because last week when we did the podcast, or a week and a bit ago now, 10 days ago, um, we only talked about the um, changes to my site and the sort of the ethics around annotation. Um, And we didn't actually cover much of or any of the the tech news from that week. And then we've got this past week's tech news as well. So um, I'm not sure if this will end up being sort of disjointed, but we do have we do have quite a few um, quite a few things to talk about. But um, Sunday night, when after we got back from our yeah tourist drive around LA, we tuned in to watch. Last week tonight, John Oliver's show, and of course he was. It was quite funny. He was quite. He was quite funny about it. He said that you know he was sort of. He's often credited with really marshalling people um, to oppose the last or to weigh in the last time that the FCC sought to um, redo "quote unquote" net neutrality, and with the you know with, with under Trump um, net neutrality. Um, is again, once again, sort of um, threatened. And so he, he was sort of back on the, um, back on his, his soapbox, again, trying to get people to weigh in with comments about, about net neutrality. So I guess before we talk about what happened, and why, why that might be interesting, but um, do you want to give a, in a nutshell, what is net neutrality? Yeah, so, um, Basically, these are rules that Obama put into place um, that kind of uphold long-standing notions that that all traffic on the the web should be should be treated in a similar fashion. So, um, the the examples that are going around this week are, you know, a, a provider, say, of Verizon or AT and T or Comcast or one of these that is a, a a cable provider provides you with access to the internet. Say they get into the business of making content. And they, Just for example, you know, it's it's total hypothetical, uh, you know, to quote uh, our the the FCC uh, director, but um, or CIO no director, is it the FCC director? Yes. What's his title? So, um, but yeah, this is totally hypothetical. Chairman, I think. Um, but actually, uh, they if they created their own content and they wanted to uh, prioritize that to and give you that. Um, faster than, say, Netflix or Amazon or any of the other people who are making content, um, that they can't do this. This is this is illegal. And, and Obama, you know, these are these weren't laws. These were just kind of commonly held beliefs for the longest time. But then they became, you know, Obama actually uh, inscribed this into law and in changing how um, how we actually regulate uh, cable internet providers, um, cellular internet providers. 
And so what uh, the current administration wants to do is roll this back. And in there, real, you know, as as the conservatives and GOP very, is very good at, they kind of flip this stuff on its head and make you make it seem like, well, these laws are regulations and they're slowing innovation and making it harder for small businesses to actually make money and compete. They 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 are really good at twisting things around. Uh, so right now, what John Oliver is talking about is that you know everyone should go to the FCC and voice their opinion that they don't want these laws repealed, so that uh, all ISPs, internet service providers, have to treat all traffic equally. Um, but uh, if this administration gets away, they're gonna they're gonna roll those back. Yeah. Um, so the uh, you know, and certainly the, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think that there are there are many reasons why this is uh, particularly pressing. But the the idea, you know, this isn't really a hypothetical. Of course, you were sort of, you were being you know pretty tongue in cheek there because, of course, you know the 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 telecommunications providers, the people who provide us with the internet, are cable are also cable television companies, and they are content creators, right? So, Time Warner. Right, Comcast. These are all these are all um, media conglomerates that own a lot of con. They don't they don't just own like the phone line, right? They don't just own um, they don't just own the the the, the inter- your internet connection. They actually they actually do um, they actually do own major media properties. And, you know, and I think about, I think about this, um, I've been thinking about this a lot ever since, um, a couple of years ago. Um, I think as far as I, my, my keeping track of things, Khan Academy was one of the very first organizations to take a chunk of change from Comcast, a significant chunk of change. And it was actually part of a settlement, um, because of Comcast, uh, um, overcharging uh, uh, and um, uh, not not offering discounts for low-income people and so they uh, they you know the, as part of a bundle with a as part of a bundle you would get sort of access to Khan, to Khan Academy and you know already thinking about what does it look like for other providers of educational content how can you compete with Khan Academy if Khan Academy is privileged on on the com, you know, if you're a Comcast subscriber, you can get the video content from Khan Academy pretty easily. But what happens if there's no more net neutrality and no longer, for example, would you perhaps be able to get, um, be able to watch YouTube videos of Sesame Street? Um, so I think it has it has real it has a lot of it has a would have I think pretty substantial um, implications for education, and it would certainly have pretty substantial educate uh, implications for someone like myself, who is a quote unquote small business owner, um, but who's not taken money from <laughs> from telecoms and telecom companies um, and their venture wings have invested quite heavily in, in a number of of education technology companies and a number of education technology publications. Um, I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that they've invested, um, AT&T's invested in or has um, backed EdSurge, for example. Um, so I think that, the, you know, to pay, paying attention of this is, this is really thinking about what happens when, um, when and if, um, when and if we, we do lose net neutrality. 
So, um, it, so what, so what John Oliver did, and he noted that they'd actually made it much more difficult. The FCC, um, whose current chairman actually used to be a lawyer for Verizon, um, uh, they've made it much more difficult to leave comments. And so what he had done is he had created a website that you'd go to that would sort of uh, auto-populate your comments um, and then submit them, submit them electronically through the FCC site. Um, and what happened? Well, and so, so the theater of all this is, I mean, they, you know, the, the, the FCC want, has to ask everyone for their opinions on this. And in classic techie fashion, you know, they put up a very complex form for you to go through and, and do this. That's really, you have to click, 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 do several things and click, click, click some more. And, and they do this so to, to make it as, there as much friction as possible in doing this. And what John did was he created a domain, uh, um, go FCC yourself that basically dropped you in exactly where you needed to be saving some clicks. And then you, um, can express yourself using the form and, and help you, you know, help articulate in, in favor of this. And so, you know, in theory, the FCC is supposed to listen to this and take all of this into consideration. And and the last is... last time around, this it broke re it did break records. The last time around, a record-setting number of comments um, uh, on on the on the proposed changes that resulted in Obama, the 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 previous administration, taking action on this and actually doing something. So, um, so you know, this is basically everyone stepping up and doing that again. And which is 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 very theater, you know. It's all of us public. It's 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 government theater. Them asking for feedback, us uh, stepping up in in this true digital way. Um, but what's interesting about it is they issued a statement saying they being that they being the uh, actually the CIO's office at um, uh, the FCC saying that they were under a denial of service attack, and so basically saying. You know, one one could argue they're setting the groundwork, saying that you know um, John Oliver caused a denial of service attack. Though there's no actual statement from them saying that, but um, that's a dangerous place to go, saying that hey, uh, the the press um, or the media can 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 ask its followers to do something, and then thus it, it it creates a denial of service attack, and that's a way of attacking government or free speech or whatever. But really the theater of this is, you know, you have to think about what is a denial of service attack or a distributed denial of service attack. It's basically a bunch of locations, um, IP addresses, uh, people making requests saying, hey, I want to submit this form and, and express ourselves." And by John Oliver saying it on HBO, a bunch of people do this. Um, now the flip side of a DDoS attack is is how much resources are invested by the the receiving end of that. How how big is the server that the form runs on? How, do they run in the cloud? Does it scale um, and and handle large loads of traffic? So I've seen a lot of companies in my career that um, uh, don't invest those resources, don't have the architecture and infrastructure in place to handle large volumes. So when this happens, they can purposely go, oh, we're not. Uh, we're under attack. We can't handle the requests, and thus they don't have to accept the requests and handle the the feedback that they're getting from this process. I'm not saying that's what the FCC is doing, but it is the the flip side of this is is a DDoS attack is is how many requests, but then how many re requests can be handled and how much resources were 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 put on the table. So it's very much, uh, you know, digital government theater, cybersecurity theater in in 2017.
uh, Senator Wyden, Senator Ron Wyden from uh, Oregon, did ask today. Um, he sent he sent the FCC a series of questions to sort of clarify what exactly they meant by a DDoS attack and some of the questions, some of the things that you just outlined. You know, what are the capacities of the FCC in order to be able to take to take public comments? Um, what what uh, what sort of uh, evidence do they have that this was a DDoS attack and not just a lot of people interested in leaving a comments? I mean, there's you know, a DDoS attack is is uh, is is um, well, I mean, ostensibly it could, it could even be criminal, right? Um, so you know, how do you distinguish between a lot of people want to do something on your website and then use, as you said, well, um, and then your website just not being able to handle it versus something that's actually sort of targeting to 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 destroy you? And I think it's a it's an um, it's it's it is very interesting to watch. I mean, it's something that you've talked about a lot. What you said, this sort of cybersecurity theater um, that's that's you know people talking about um, people talking about these sorts of digital threats um, in ways that further their particular their particular narrative and then you know all the while I think we're all quite quite vulnerable um, to uh, to other kinds of to other kinds of actual sort of attacks well the it's more importantly, it's 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 the erosion of 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 what we have right now. I don't I don't want to go as far as saying rights because actually we don't have any rights when it comes to the internet yet. Um, that's a road we should be going down. But right now, you know, they're using this cybersecurity theater in the context of uh, net neutrality, which I have I want to say just previously we these discussions were about privacy and them selling your data at this level which is a whole nother kind of skit or 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 act in this this whole um what seems from this administration is just continued um cybersecurity theater when it comes to the election when it comes to fake news when it comes to you know all of this so for them to 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 invoke a, a DDoS attack is is definitely I think um, smoke and mirrors and cover fire for for this continued erosion of our uh, of what we have right now as far as fair play on when it comes to the 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 network pipes that that give us our internet and our mobile devices and I want to say though that this is you know net neutrality is already um, under a lot of attack when you when you look at like um, AT, providers like AT and T they have premium content providers meaning if you're an AT&T partner um say MTV or you know uh, a a video provider say like Bloomberg with news um ESPN with like sports videos you can make a deal with AT&T and they have an API for this for doing this that your content can be seen by viewers and it doesn't come off of their data plan. Right. So it's sort um, of it's already I mean this notion that the, that there that net neutrality is this this sort of purity that we need to protect is is already sort of a false narrative. Yeah, and I'm not saying that you know you know screw it we should just throw up our hands. Hey, I didn't cuss there. I almost wanted to. Uh and 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 say net neutrality is dead. I'm not saying that we should definitely fight at every angle for it. But they're already finding creative, innovative, and disruptive ways for 
for attacking net neutrality and it's being suffocated in a lot of ways. We need to just ensure that these these pipes stay transparent and open and how these, you know, how they're selling our data, how they're prioritizing content that gets delivered to us, all these things, these kind of shady things that are happening at the network level right now. Well, um, I think perhaps we'll come, I don't know if this is a segue, segue to a different story to talk about next, but I think that one of the things I think that to keep in mind when I when I hear this is that you know the the regu- the way in which the Obama administration's FCC and and um, Jeep Pai was was on he was a Republican appointed member of the of the FCC so he's not new he's just na- now the chairman um, under under Obama Tom Wheeler was the was the was the chairman um, a, dem- a Democrat but anyway um, but the 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 way in which the um, these the internet service providers are are regulated as regulated as common carriers, which gives or they're they're designated as common carriers, which gives the FCC far more regulatory oversight in what what happens, right? And so there are a lot of I think debates right now thinking about not just um, not just internet service providers, but what 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 does it look like to be a technology company? And what and and to be a a like a technology provider, and what is it to be a media company? And I think um, I think about this in terms of Facebook, which really insists that it's a technology company and not a media company, and yet does all sorts of things that are absolutely media media company. oriented right and so thinking about what are the regulatory what are the sort of regulatory um oversight that happens to media companies what can media you know what can you what can and can't you do um what what a um uh, what can and can't you broadcast what are you or are you not responsible for in terms of um in terms of profanity, for example, if you're a media company, um, and what are you not responsible for when you're a technology company? Uh, and so this, I mean, this isn't the story I thought we'd talk about next, but this past week, or maybe it was the week before, um, Facebook has been under a lot of pressure, no surprise, because Facebook Live is a really bad idea. Facebook Live is a terrible idea, and this allows anybody to become a broadcaster, if you will, to be able to broadcast live content, live video, live streaming video content um, through a Facebook app onto Facebook. Um, And although, I mean, ostensibly, you know, it's been used to document, um, I mean, I I feel like when it's mostly, it seems to me the things that catch our attention are when it's used to document death. Um, and there were a, there have been a couple of incidents recently. Um, a man killed his daughter, and then killed himself, and then I think another suicide as well. And so, you know, Facebook Facebook can say, well, we're not a media company, right? We we have no responsibility to uh, to 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 filter or block or to have some sort of ethical thing in line in order to show or not show this kind of content. Um, um, but they did just announce that they were hiring a bunch of people in order to moderate the content. And I thought this was interesting because the, at their recent developer event, they did boast at how 
they're pushing the boundaries of artificial intelligence so that artificial intelligence would be able to sort of sense all sense fake news sense um, violent content but uh, his book is actually hiring 3,000 3, people to expand its content moderation force well this I mean it really it's it's fascinating to watch Facebook twist and contort um, when this comes to the algorithm and and the and the news content and curation you remember how back when they fired all the people and we're going to go strictly with machine learning for this um, and then now with video hey machine learning is going to be is the solution to everything but hey we're going to have to actually hire 3,000 people um, and we have to make a mention of the the kind of um, mechan- Amazon mechanical Turk actual kind of notion of this this isn't like 3000 family wage living jobs in in the United States right you are, you aren't in, working in, in Palo Alto yeah well, yeah these these 3000 people are not living in Palo Alto guarantee they're they're somewhere else in the world and they're people who are they're in the Philippines what's up they're in the Philippines yeah they're in the Philippines so these are growing number of people that are um, inside these algorithms um, in a kind of mechanical Turk way that are actually doing um, a lot of the, the, the button pushing and clicking and, and validation and verification that algorithms are, are, are being promised to be good at. But in, in reality, they actually fall way short when it comes to images, object recognition and images in, in video and and being able to see patterns in news where it just really shows that we're going to need uh, this continued human presence at this front line um, in helping, you know, make these decisions. I mean, and, you know, I, I think about the, how the emotional toll, the really the emotional toll, um, if, you, if you talk to journalists who um, report from war zones, for example, they talk about the trauma, the PTSD of, of seeing, um, seeing violence and seeing death and experiencing war um, and reporting on it. Um, and I think that there is a there is a shared and expanded trauma now that we're exposing ourselves to, really um, snuff videos often of young black men di- dying at the hands of police officers. I mean, the way in which um, the the black body is 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 on display for um, for um, in in these in these videos is is horrific and it's so traumatic and i think you know journalists who do this work and as well as i mean as well as a variety of first responders who do this work um have to think very carefully about their own self-care um and how they are able to compartmentalize and decompress if you will um from from witnessing and experiencing these really traumatic scenes um and and now what we have because of um, these cell phone videos is that we're actually offloading that to all of us now that, um, and often because the video auto plays, you click on something and you, um, and because there isn't editorial control, right? Because Mark Zuckerberg insists that Facebook is not a media company. It's just a tech company. There's no editorial control on, on, on this. There's no caution what you, you know, this, this, you, you know, there's no blurring out of of things, um, but but what 
you know, but this decision now is offloading the trauma to low wage workers in in the global south, right? And so, you know, I, I think that there's that the this is this is such traumatic content because it's I mean it's you know because it, this, these are people who are looking at videos that have been flagged for a variety of reasons. And so this is, this is at, at its most graphic, this is murder. These are beheadings. Um, these are self-harm. This is porn. This is child porn. This is killing animals. Um, this is really shitty stuff that we are offloading now onto, um, onto low-wage workers, often in the Philippines. Um, and I think, you know, all, all to sort of further this, this notion that you know, to insist that Facebook has no responsibility, of 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 being of an edit of of editorial control. I think we are, um, you know, ironically, Facebook has you know Mark Zuckerberg is known for saying you know move fast and break things, and I think we underestimate the the damage of real time. And, you know, I talked about this many times coming out of the, the woods last summer about, you know, the constant assault of technology. And I, I really think we, we, we really, we shouldn't be investing so much in real time always being good that, that sometimes um, slowing things down, adding that editorial layer, that content control, um, not have, having this constant bombardment of news, videos, images, um, just just hitting us is is always good. It's it's we need to maybe stop and, and think a little bit more about this. Um, and I think it's going to end up being a partnership of algorithms and humans to to ultimately figure this out. But I think we just need to get more honest about the damage that this does. I mean, when I was going through the fake news stuff over the holidays, you know, I had to walk away from that work because I just couldn't stand reading all the things that, that the alt-right and the, and the conservatives in this country were, were creating and putting out there, but then amplifying and automating and, and, and bot distributing in a way that is just, no wonder these people are so afraid and so scared because the things that they're they're inundated in in this real time way are just scared the crap out of me, you know. So um, I think we need to you know kind of step back and and look at that. And I think in addition to you know really in, investing too much in real time, we're we're underestimating what humans can handle with this kind of stuff. And you talked about self care and stuff, but I just don't think that the the regular pop average you know jane or joe person online knows what's going on what's happening to them and and i question that they 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 don't really have a good grip on reality especially in this this opiate fueled um world we find ourselves in i just i i, I worry about our our, our well-being as a as, as a nation yeah i mean our our mental health yeah i think so i mean I, I think of, you know, this is, um, you know, thinking about how, how we think about our presence online. Um, one of the things, um, you know, I think I talked about it briefly, but I go through now and I delete my history. Um, I delete anything older than 90 days on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and, you know, just thinking about, for me, um, and, and going back through that process and, 
particularly the first time I did it, um, looking back at the things, the sort of anguish in my own, uh, my own anguish, um, watching the the presidential election unfold. Um, I think that there's so much, there's so much personal trauma and then sort of global trauma that we are recording in um, online. And I, I'm not saying don't express yourself, but I'm not sure that we've sort of thought through what does it mean to have this sort of etched upon our profiles in this sort of semi-permanence because of the sort of digital record. So for me, it's quite, it's quite refreshing to go through and delete things. Um, and then also, you know, deleting, um, deleting email. There are these practices that I think we're being told that we should do. Um, we're, we're told that we should share. We're told that we should keep everything. We're told that storage, you know, storage is inconsequential now. You can, st you can store everything and keep everything. And um, I'm not sure that, you know, me the, human, the human brain, when it comes to memory and trauma, has evolved. And I, I, I'm always cautious about biological explanations. But I, but, I mean, uh, you know, because I, I, I believe really strongly in social construction and cultural construction. But I think the human brain has evolved biologically to minimize our recollection and our... Um, the way in which we carry forward uh, um, so readily traumatic experiences that we've experienced, traumatic experiences. And so I'm not sure we've really thought through what does it mean to not just exist around the sort of real-time stream of trauma, but also to also have left this trail of trauma um, that records our own um, our own experiences in in a particular way. So I've been I've been deleting things. Um, you know, you can request a download of your data, and then then hit delete. There is no reason why you should have if you signed up for Gmail when it first launched, right? You've probably got ten over ten years of of Gmail. And there is no reason why um, you should have all of that in, um, in some sort of easily um, hackable, as we saw this week, but also just easily sort of re-traumatizable, um, emotionally weaponizable um, meet, uh, you know, format. Um, delete it. Delete it. There's, uh, you know, and I think probably the last story we have time for is this Google Docs phishing attack. Um, which absolutely takes advantage of the fact that in our we that that Gmail in particular keeps this historical record of everyone we've ever communicated with, and in some ways every sort of email transaction we've ever had. So it's not just it's not just a violation of my privacy, but then if I'm hacked, it's a violation of the privacy of every single person I've ever emailed, um, and. I think that, I mean, I think that we're going to have to start coming to terms with, um, with these practices that we've adopted for the sake of, because we've made this weird analogy that somehow computer memory is better than human memory, um, when really uh, human memory, human memory has a function of forgetting for, that's a feature. Well, that notion is that completeness and comprehensiveness are better. You know, I'm, I'm, I have lots of memory issues for a variety of reasons, and I'm actually 
pretty thankful for most of them being in place. So how does this translate into this paradigm with notions like, you know, right to be forgotten online, things like that, and like you're doing 90 days cleaning up after yourself. I mean, I think people, um, your your Gmail, you know, I mean, this is me. I have not gone through my Gmail and done what you've done. And I was one of the early, early, early beta invites for Gmail. So I have over a decade of, you know, every contact. And so to clarify the the hack that had happened, basically, it's kind of an, a new form of, of phishing where you get an email from someone you know um, and, and, and saying you uh, to give them access to a Google Doc. And then from the email, you're, you're basically, if you click on it, you're, the next screen is an OAuth, which using the Google APIs um, asks to, for you to, 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 to give this application um, access to your Gmail, your contacts. And then it, it, it propagates itself. It goes to your contacts. It sends out email to all those people. And when you think about my contact list, that's a pretty massive contact list. That's over a decade of everybody I've emailed with in Gmail. And um, and then just in the context of that, that data being siphoned off, if they just, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I've kind of reached the top of where I'm going. I'm going to keep doing API evangelist. But for someone who's like just in university, that's going to be come a con- congressperson or a senator or a, you know, you know, potentially president down the road. Um, that's pretty valuable uh, leverage against that person as far as things they said, who they talked to, um, had random communications with. Um, that's some pretty potentially damaging, uh, privacy damaging stuff. Yeah, uh, and I think that, I mean, you know, I think that it's perhaps in the rec- in recent years people have become more thoughtful about the security risks with this. Um, but I, I, you know, think of the number of times where you have, for example, um, I mean, in our case, as, as freelance workers, um, this happens a lot where someone emails you a W-9 and asks, W-9, W-3, whatever, a tax form, asks you to fill out a tax form, right, with your social security number, right? Or you invoice somebody a bill and it's got your banking information. Or you get a receipt for something and it's got your credit card number exposed. Or someone sends you a you know, if, if, if it's a really shoddy listserv or a particularly shoddy app, they send you your email pa- or the password in plain text in, via email. So there's a lot of stuff in email that is really dangerous for our own information security. Um, and I, I mean, hopefully people have got better recently about their about their security practices when using email, but I'm guessing that a lot of people who sent, who used Gmail back in 2005, for example, communicated this stuff over email all the time. Um, And so it's not just a matter of, again, it's not just the what, I don't have anything to hide. It's that, um, you know, it's that really we have, we have a, a history of practices in our email and sort of poor, poor information, poor security practices within our email that are incredibly vulnerable to these sorts of, to these increasingly sophisticated um, phishing attacks. And, you know, the, and unfortunately, you know, just sort of bring this full circle, we, we um, have, you know, these, the, 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 these companies are, I think, aware of these vulnerabilities and really, 
much like the cybersecurity theater of the FCC saying that, you know, suggesting that perhaps there was a DDoS attack on their site. I think that people have really been, have made it quite far, um, quite long without being really um, completely honest about how, how these technologies work um, and, and what's happening to our personal data, what's happening what's happening online. And I think we can see, you know, I mean, we've got so many other stories. We didn't have a chance to talk about the Macron hack. Um, uh, you know, the Amazon has a new Alexa that you can put in your bedroom that'll film you and give you feedback on your, your fashion and your weight. Um, I mean, I just think increasingly people are making these, these decisions that are not very well thought out. And then when it comes to the when it comes to conversations about security and privacy, I think we fall we fall for some we fall for stories that are um, perhaps not you know perhaps not plausible because we just haven't really done a good job of of thinking beyond beyond a ver beyond these things in very very simple terms because it's not it's not simply the Russians right this isn't no. this isn't the Russians. No, I mean the 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 systems are weak and unstable and 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 vulnerable. Uh, people are 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 supposed to be illiterate and and unaware of the workings of all of this stuff. Um, these systems are being replicated, scaled, moved forward, connected to every device. Like you said, the the Amazon devices in our room, without considering all of this, and the entire model is being designed to need and have this this insatiable appetite for data machine learning ai cognitive all these things need vast amounts of data so the whole system is designed to get you to not clean up your data to have all of this everything about you in an accessible way so that they can sell you something push you something and, and keep these things moving forward so And I think we had technical issues. Um, until next time. <laughs>